the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today's passage is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. The Armor of God Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of, of the evil one. This is the God's. Join me in prayer, would you? Father, we thank you for your living word, and we pray that um, as it addresses a reality of life that either we're not too well informed of or, or we're little wary of, we pray that your Holy Spirit would deal very gently with us. Speak, Lord. Your servants listen. Amen. One of the key questions every human being asks somewhere in their life, every religion, every philosophy, every worldview has to answer is this question, what has gone wrong with the world? And it is a question I'm sure that is on many hearts um, as world events have taken their course, as we this past week here in Canada have, have seen the massacre of people in Quebec in a mosque. And you're left wondering, what do we have to explain that with? How do we answer that? How do we make sense of the intractable pathologies of human life? Why in the world is there such a mess like we often see? To get at that question, I want to ask another question. Why is it that in every story that we tell, every great movie that we watch, every fantastic novel that we cherish, why are all the, in the, all the best children's stories and all the epic tales, why does every story have an antagonist, a villain, an enemy? Think of all the villains in their stories, the big bad wolf, or the wicked witch of the West, or Cruella de Vil, or Darth Vader, or Voldemort, or Lord Sauron, a whole cast of villains. In every story, some shadow falls, and, and you see a being then in that story who seeks to just spoil the good of whatever that narrative world is. Why is there a villain in every story we tell? Here's why. Because your story has a villain. Because your story has an antagonist in it. The true story of the world, of your life, is a battle story. Did you know that? 
The true story of the whole world tells us that there is a good king, God, who has established this world, who has created it with all its beauty and wonder and glory. Every inch of reality is God's beautiful kingdom, but there is a villain. There's a vandal that's spoiling all that good, the devil, and he's claiming as his own territory, God's territory. And the Christian story, therefore, reminds us that this life, this world is contested space. Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians with this word, finally, finally. So he's wrapping things up. And after all that he's unpacked for us, all that he's communicated about who Jesus Christ is, what Christ has done for us, this cosmic Lord that he has described, and then the impact, unpacking the impact of that on our daily lives, in our regular relationships, he then ends this whole letter by reminding us of the nature of our life in this world. He reminds us that right now we live in contested space. There is a fight, a battle going on. And you need to know that. It's uncomfortable, but you need to know that. If, if, if you came for comfort, don't come to Christianity. C.S. Lewis once said that. He says, you know, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I knew a bottle of port would do just as fine. If you want religion to make you really comfortable, I don't recommend Christianity. And Paul is sort of underscoring that same reality here at the end of Ephesians. The life of Jesus, the history-altering, the, the life-transforming good news of Jesus Christ is stunning, but don't pursue it for comfort. This is not a spiritual country club. A Christian realizes and experiences a fight going on. And for some of us, that's, that's an uncomfortable reality and we, we prefer to keep it sort of on the sidelines of our faith. The reality is too many Christians have been fairly suspicious and slow to recognize this reality of what sometimes people call spiritual warfare. Ever hear of that term? But maybe for others, we're not suspicious. Uh, instead, um, we're scared. Because somewhere in your life, you've sense something. You've experienced something, some, something dark, and you, you couldn't find words to describe that experience, and you didn't know what to do with this, and you, you didn't feel like you could really talk to others about it, and so again, you just sideline that thing. So either way, if you're suspicious or if you're scared, we ignore this reality, but we do it to our peril because if we don't recognize it, if we're not prepared, we're going to get taken down. I think some of the reason that Christians have had for neglecting this reality of spiritual warfare is some of the abuses of it. Um, for some of us here, I bet we, we sort of wince at the language of spiritual warfare. You know, maybe in your mind you're thinking, doesn't it just encourage suspicion and judgmentalism and intolerance? Not to mention inquisitions, holy wars, witch burnings, genocides. Isn't, isn't spiritual warfare just language for holy war? Hasn't it been used to legitimate divinely authorized violence? And that's important for us to name and, and, and so important for us to be cautious about how we speak of this. For others, the idea of uh, naming something as evil is, is problematic because sometimes people think, come on, 
You're intelligent. We're intelligent beings here. Isn't that just an archaic category to try to sort through life? I mean, sure, people once believed in evil powers and the devil, but that was long ago. You know, in a primitive society, we've progressed. We've developed beyond that. We're more sophisticated in our understanding of what's wrong with the world. We have a bigger, more nuanced view of it. That Back then, that was simplistic. People attributed to whatever was going on to demons, to these spiritual characters. But we have a more complex knowledge of human life and pathology. But even for the most ardent materialist, even for the strongest atheist, you're confronted with both past and recent horrors and genocides with sex trafficking that continues on today with systemic oppression. And that has got to challenge your assumptions. That has got to tell you there is something more at play here. That provides, evil provides a, an explanatory category for so much of what happens in the world. Actually, the Bible provides us with a far more nuanced and multidimensional view of reality by including evil and by naming these things of powers. It never reduces what's wrong in the world to sort of this flatline, one, two-dimensional reality. You know, it doesn't say it's just physical. It doesn't say it's just psychological causes. If we address human problems with with I guess that sort of simplistic worldview, um, it's going to get us again and again. And yet so much of the world, um, we need to name that, so much of what is wrong in the world is from human sin. I mean, talk of spiritual warfare is meant never to diminish human agency. We've got to assert that very clearly. It does not encourage, a, well, the devil made me do it. What could I do type of attitude, Right? or to, to spot a demon behind everything. Um, it is simply, when we name this, what Paul's doing this, it is simply to recognize that there is for, far more wrong in the world than the sum total of human sin. There is a bigger reality going on. Doesn't that make sense? Think, think of that little African country called Rwanda and what happened there some time ago considered one of the most Christianized African nations. Rwanda descended into this hellish genocide in which 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. That is staggering. What on earth causes that? What sort of movement generates that atrocity? Many Rwandans, they, they, they were just ordinary people like you and me, but who got caught up in some evil power. The Canadian general who was in charge of the UN peacekeeping forces, you might have heard the story, Romeo Dallaire, he was so undone by what he witnessed, so shaken, because there was nothing in his system that could explain it. And this, he concludes... He says, I know there is a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, and I have touched him. I know there is a devil, and therefore I know there is a God. Romeo Dallaire could not account 
or explain the evil that he witnessed without understanding that there are other forces at play in this world. And unless he had a belief in God, and unless he understood that there were spiritual powers, principalities at work, he just could not, it didn't fit. It didn't make sense of what was going on. It is just impossible to account for evil and wickedness in this world by strictly attributing it to human factors. Bad choices, bad upbringing, you know, inequitable distribution of resources. You just can't account for it. If you try to work out all the human problems with a less complex view of the world, if you think merely social factors or psychology are going to explain what's gone wrong, it's going to undo you. It'll take you down. And so today, and for two more weeks after this, not next week, but two weeks after that, we're going to explore this. It's important for us to look at this. We don't want to give inordinate attention to it. Um, that would be not a wise thing. But we do need to be smart and savvy and be knowledge about it. So we're going to focus in on this passage. But today I just want to look at one verse, verse 12, uh, because it gives sort of a worldview category for us to understand this. Verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Modern people who have been shaped by the Enlightenment live with generally this two-dimensional worldview. Most people in our city, probably most people you work with, in your neighborhoods, they understand the world. Everything they understand can be traced to either the self or, or just the physical environment. But that leaves so many unanswered questions as we've been exploring. As Hamlet said to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There are more forces at work in this world. And it's interesting how even in the church, we can get blindsided by this reality. So many divisions or squabbles that happen in the church come often because Christians, I think, are like blindfolded people. We're, we're being pushed around by larger powers. We're not understanding some of the bigger battle. And then we respond by striking out against one another. But Paul says, no, you know, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now that in itself, I think, is one of the most hopeful and helpful things that he talks about. Our battle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, human beings. Humans are not our enemies. Paul is redefining who the real enemy in this battle is. Other flesh and blood people, nope, not the actual foe, but the powers that stand in this other realm. A far bigger stage is understood here. The biblical worldview and, and understanding of spiritual warfare, it, it's interesting, it doesn't propagate, it doesn't promote uh, violence or intolerance of others because it understands that your enemy is not other people. We are called to love and accept other people. Our warfare, our battle is somewhere else against some other enemy. The fight we are involved in is against rulers, authorities, the powers and the principalities, Paul says. But you wonder, what are they? What is he talking about? Some scholars that I read this past week have argued that Paul is referring to visible and essentially human forces. 
They are things like human structures or like, like cultural traditions or patterns of thought and belief, schools of philosophy, laws, regulations, political parties, um, even religions. All of these can be oppressive and work against God's purposes in the world. Other scholars, as they think and try to understand Paul, argue that Paul is talking about not visible, but invisible, but still human forces. And so they would argue that human structures or socio-political structures can take on a life of their own. Um, for, in for instance, a, a larger corporate identity can grow and emerge an ethos, a spirit of the age, uh, a force which is greater than the sum of its parts can grow. Think of how when a crowd can get together and maybe it's a particularly angry protest and how very quickly people who have been in situations like that can describe how there's, there is a turning and something turns ugly and then all of a sudden people are doing things that before they would never do on their own because it feels like there's some force that has taken over that crowd. We, we sometimes use the term mob mentality um, to describe that, but what's the nature of that? What's the force behind that? Bible talks about there are these principalities and powers at play that, that invite people and, and cause people to behave in ways that they would never on their own act. They're at play in a variety of different places. Take government, for instance. I mean, governments are good institutions in our world. We are thankful for them. But interesting how governments can take on a life of their own so that, let's say, different, no matter who populates the government, it's like nothing changes, right? No matter who gets elected, it feels like they act in the same way. I mean, this week, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, uh, reneged on an election promise to pursue electoral reform. And that was entirely predictable. Because as soon as a government inhabits that space, there's a power, something greater of a government that then begins a force so that they protect power and the privilege that they have. There are powers at play in these structures. That's the bigger reality of what Paul is beginning to describe here. And that happens even in churches. When a church community can take a life of its own, and sometimes that's a really good uh, kingdom-oriented power that is aligned with God's kingdom that provides life and healing. There's a power of the Holy Spirit that, that is greater than the sum of all of us together. But sometimes that larger life at work in churches can be oppressive and hurtful. It can stifle life. It can stifle ministry. It makes me think about us. It makes me wonder, is there any powers at play that we need to name and repent? So some understand these powers to be visible, human realities. Some understand them to be invisible, but still human realities, structures. But Paul here is talking about something more as well. I think he includes all those. He's referring to a a spirit that's larger than any human spirit, another dimension of reality that intersects with all that we can see and hear and taste and touch in this physical realm. He refers to a personal being, verse 11, the devil. And then later on, verse 16, he refers to the evil one. There's this personal force at work here. 
And we can't go into much detail here this morning. We'll try to get something into the uh, home church studies about this. But the Bible shows us the reality of these personal forces of evil, heavenly hosts that were created by God, that have rebelled against God, and now stand opposed to God and his kingdom. And one scholar has put a helpful framework for us to understand the dual nature of this. Walter Wink is his name. And uh, as he, to summarize his work of understanding the powers, he, he gives this formula. P equals O plus I. So remember that. P equals O plus I. P, the powers. These powers and principalities are not these goblins that spook us. They're not only institutions. Both of those are inadequate. They contain some truth. There's a reality of demons, and there's a reality of these human institutions that have greater powers, but there's something more. These powers, P, always have, O, an outer manifestation. So constitutions or judges or armies or leaders or buildings, there is this outward manifestation. Plus I, this inner spiritual reality. It's this combination of both. These powers and principalities have this outward manifestation and some inner spiritual reality that we need to account for. I think in Quebec this past week, one week ago, an outer manifestation of a young man with a gun, an inner spiritual reality driving that, this power of hatred, of racism, that somehow caught a hold of this man. It's both of these things. And in the West, we fail to understand that the dual nature, some of the spiritual reality of things like structures and institutions, and the, the power that they can exert and influence. Take, for example... The reality of poverty in our world. Isn't it a scandal in our city, in our wealthy country, that there remains such striking levels of poverty? I mean, how do you explain that, really? Some people say, well, come on, these people, they just need to get a job. They need to work harder, plan better, budget better. Maybe. Others say, well, they need better education. We need more government programs, more social assistance. Maybe. But talk to people who are poor, and often they will describe their reality of being of feeling trapped in poverty, of stuck, of just pushed down. And they'll tell you stories about mind-numbing complex complexity of government agencies that almost feel like they are arranged to ensure people never get out of poverty. This, this endless demand for documentation, the overlap between one different government agency and one other program. So one person goes to help for one place and finds out that if he gets a job, he'll lose the benefits that are now supporting him. Or if he makes just a certain level of money above a certain level, he forfeits the help that another agency might provide for him. And every time he goes back, he's told he needs another form he needs to provide another piece of documentation. And, and for the poor in our city, it, it's like there is this endless, overwhelming, dehumanizing process that is making sure they never escape poverty. It feels like there's a dehumanizing power at work. Outward manifestation, 
is this labyrinth of bureaucracy. But make no mistake about it, there's an inner spiritual reality or force at play too. There is a battle going on, friends. And whether you recognize it or not, you're in it. We need that to understand our life. If we're going to live wisely, if we're going to live well, if we're going to understand our city and what makes it tick, it is critical that we understand there's a fight going on. But it's also critical that we understand that we are not in this alone. This is the, the good news, the Christian's hope. We know who has won the battle, Jesus Christ. We are thrown back, not on ourselves. We are thrown back in this struggle on Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says right at the front end, be strong in the Lord, in Jesus, and in his mighty power. Because as Paul has been telling us, this Jesus, he has been raised from the dead, and he is seated in the heavenly realms far above all authority, power, and dominion. This is the life we live. Jesus is the one who rules, and through his death and resurrection, the powers are defeated powers. They're still wreaking havoc in this life, but they're limited. And God's power shown in Jesus Christ and his resurrection, it is available to all those who follow Jesus. So be strong in the Lord, because he is the one in whom we find our strength. How do we do that? Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, and we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks, um, about how we do that. But friends, do not lose heart. Do not fear. Because remember, Paul has already said, we are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. So be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is God's battle, and his strength is yours. Let's pray. Fathers, we begin to take in this teaching. For us, for some of us, it, it really expands our worldview. Because for some of us, we have really just sort of slipped into the cultural mindset and thinking in terms of a very one, two-dimensional world. And that really hasn't helped explain a whole lot for us, God. And this, this bigger picture helps us to see with a greater clarity, with a deeper understanding into some of what's going on in this world. God, there's a fight and for some of us, we've lost that fight in our faith. It feels like we're not fighting against things in our lives that we ought to. Some of us realize we're not putting on the armor of God. We're not stepping out. We're not obeying you. We're not trusting in your power. God, we pray now that you would make us bold, that this reality of a battle would not make us cower or step back, but knowing that we follow Jesus Christ, knowing that it is his power, his goodness that we live in. Make us, God, deeply more dependent on you. And as we sing and as we come to the table now, we pray that you would endow us, that you would fill us with your power, your life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.